very good to be back in this chapel after nearly a year of worship by Zoom and a semester in a very different environment in the company of a very different community. And having Professor Lodge with us this morning extends that reunion to past CITR students and also to our colleagues and fellow Christians at DCU and in Christchurch. One of the privileges of a real liturgical gathering is being read to. We speak in idealistic terms of the table of the Word and the table of the Eucharist, and the separation from the body that leads around both of them has been a great deprivation. Today we make up for that, not only by listening together, but like the theatrical device of the play within a play, listening to narratives that themselves describe scripture being read. In both cases, the congregational reactions command attention. Nehemiah describes the returning exiles who have a marathon listening session from early morning to midday as the law is read and interpreted. At first they become distressed and they break out in weeping. It takes some reassurance on the part of those in charge to persuade them that this is not an occasion to grief and self-accusation. It's a moment of joy. The law is reaffirmed in the hearing of God's people in the place to which God has led them back. It happens at the beginning of a month of festivals, a new year. Relationships are restored. The law is no longer a symbol of fear, but a bond of connection with a faithful God. Perhaps we can look on this as a new start on an impressive scale. Not a very different kind of new start. It takes place in the synagogue in Nazareth, where Jesus arrives on the Sabbath and finds himself in a very public position. Whether he just happens to be present when the chosen passage from Isaiah appeared in the lectionary, or whether he expressly requested that scroll, the Gospel writer doesn't tell us. What is clear is that this too is a supremely important inaugural event, the beginning of a ministry, whose characteristics and signs are all foreshadowed in the passage which Jesus has read. It's a suitably imposing setting. Just imagine watching as the reader goes forward to receive the scroll, unrolls it, reads from it, comments, then rolls it up and returns to his place. That's perhaps another reminder of the distinct lack of ceremony that our more recent patterns of worship have imposed on us, and the real importance of movement, pace, expectation, and drama. The initial reception confirms that the whole action has been effective. There were audible and approving murmurs about the local boy at the lectern, Joseph's son. It would have occurred to you as the gospel was read that the mood changes very suddenly. The cause is what seems at face value to be some unprovoked and unnecessarily tactless closing remarks from Jesus. Why didn't he just stop while he had the audience on his side? seasoned public speakers would have realized that. It wouldn't have compromised anything. Just keep that question in the back of your minds for, for the present moment while we make a short deviation. Some of you may have watched all or part of the funeral of Archbishop Desmond Tutu took place in Cape Town on New Year's Day. Perhaps you read the reports if you didn't watch the video. It was an extraordinary event, which powerfully conveyed an extraordinary life. Here was another local boy who had spoken prophetically about freedom, justice, dignity, and equality, and then about truth and reconciliation. 
This did not always go down well, and even members of the Anglican Church of Southern Africa chose at times to withhold their financial contributions because Tutu was preaching politics again. Well, the odd idea that preaching and politics have nothing to do with each other. It's very hard to eradicate. I remember him visiting the school in Johannesburg where I spent a year and telling a sixth form class that there is no privilege without responsibility. That was when privilege still divided starkly across racial lines. And after the dismantling of apartheid, he continued to call those who now found themselves in power to account. He was, of course, always very even-handed in his manner of offending people. <laughs> he, uh, he reminded the newly liberalized white population that these days it was terribly hard to meet anybody who'd ever supported apartheid. <laughs> uh, he infuriated the ANC by telling them that they'd stopped the gravel train just long enough in order to get on. They were sensitive to criticism. It was, however, his founding of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission which stands as his greatest legacy. He presided over each harrowing session, and he was sometimes reduced to weeping by the stories of bereaved families, victims of torture, torturers, and murderers came forward to tell. At home, South Africans were glued to their television sets. My father told me on the phone one day, I was living in England at that time, with a noticeable shake in his voice, we didn't know. I think that in those words he was expressing what was true for every member of this painfully emerging nation. The findings they were witnessing from their sitting rooms were addressed to them. There was no avoiding something so direct. It was not even an accusation, but it was a stern reminder that to become the kind of society that they wanted to become, they would all have to be involved. There'd be no half commitments, no assumptions that someone else would take the necessary, necessary action, no sense of not knowing at the time that you are being involved in the now. The work is by no means complete, as the president acknowledged in his funeral eulogy. There are still far too many living in poverty, too many beyond the reach of good medical care, too many young people without opportunities, and too many public servants enriching themselves at the expense of those who have entrusted them with office. Almost with his last breath, Archbishop Tutu was exhorting his fellow South Africans to keep at it and to include their, concern, uh, their concerns for the things that he had always cared about, uh, extend them to climate change, environmental protection, and gender justice along with the existing agenda. It would be far too crude to suggest a straightforward parallel between Jesus and the synagogue in his hometown and the prophetic role of Desmond Tutu. But what I really want to point to is this. In both cases, the power of the utterance lies in the fact that it's unavoidable. And in the voice of one of the community, someone we all thought was one of us, and who then abruptly went off message, it is even more unavoidable. Once it becomes evident that you are being spoken to, that prophecy is for you, not for some indefinite fictional audience, then you've been called to action. You can't go backwards in time and pretend that you didn't hear. In that light, it's not surprising that such violence and animosity greeted Jesus. 
cried that they were very happy to welcome him as Joseph's son. They didn't really want a prophet amongst them. He'd exposed the impediments to the fulfillment of the vision God was inviting God's people to share and then to turn to reality. But it would be others, Gentiles, outside of this apparently obviously privileged community, who would find healing and liberation. Nothing could be taken for granted anymore. Earlier this morning, some of us were gathered here to talk about Benedictine spirituality. The rule which has been Benedict's legacy begins with the word listen. Good listening is never passive, and it is not words alone which are its subject. Archbishop Tutti's meticulous funeral instructions specify that the hymn of the preparation of the table before the Eucharistic prayer began would be a paraphrase of the third century liturgy of St. James. Christ still speaks to us as we gather around word and sacrament. And I'll leave you with, with, with those words. Let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing empty-minded. For with blessing in his hand, Christ our God, to earth descending, comes our homage to command. Now I invite you to stand as we confess our faith. 